It's a blessing to be here this morning on this Sunday, this Sunday out of the year when we especially celebrate our Lord's resurrection. It really is the the reason why we come together to worship every Sunday, every Lord's Day. It's the reason why we have the Lord's Day on Sunday now rather than as they did in the Old Testament on on, uh, Saturday. And we come together every, every Lord's Day and we celebrate that He is risen. But this week is a special week. This is the day, almost 2,000 years ago, the Sunday following Passover week, when Jesus Christ, having been crucified on Friday, rose from the dead. But, we know He's alive. We know that He rose again. We know that He's living today. But, so what? What are the implications for us? What does it mean to us today that Jesus Christ is alive? At the beginning of the service, Tim read the uh, 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. It begins by, by uh, giving us the account of Jesus' resurrection. And it is a historical fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. There is an empty grave, as we just sang, there that proves that our Savior lives. Jesus is alive today. And then that, uh, that same chapter ends with this verse. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. But I want to I unpack that this morning. I want to go deeper. I want to go further this morning and answer the question, even, even in a greater way, so what? What are the implications to us today that Jesus Christ is alive? I want to answer that in three different ways this morning. What are the implications of the resurrection? First, what are the implications for Jesus Himself? That He rose from the dead. What does that mean for Jesus, our Lord and Savior? Secondly, I want to talk about what does it mean for the world at large? What does it mean for every human being who has ever lived that Jesus is alive today? And then finally, what does it mean for the church? What does it mean for true believers? What does it mean for those who belong to Jesus Christ? Well, first we'll talk about Jesus. What does it mean for Him that He rose from the dead? Well, the first thing that it means is His resurrection validates every claim that He ever made. And Jesus made some pretty outlandish claims. There were a lot of things that He said that the Pharisees just wrote off. A lot of things that He said that would have been fairly easy to dismiss. But when He rose from the dead, on the third day when He was alive again, He proved that everything that He ever said, every claim that He ever made was absolutely true. It's irrefutable that the things that Jesus claimed while He was alive on this earth were absolutely true. And He proved it when He rose from the dead. I want to look at just a few of those this morning, things that He claimed. Well, the first and maybe the most obvious thing that was validated when he rose from the dead was that he claimed that he would rise from the dead. This is something that that not only his disciples recognized, the Pharisees, his enemies, also knew that that was what he claimed. In fact, after he had died, Matthew records that uh, the Pharisees went to Pilate and they said to him, They said, sir, we remember how that imposter, that's how they referred to Jesus, how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after 
three days I will rise. They remember. They weren't necessarily counting on His resurrection, but they knew that He had claimed that He would rise three days after He was killed. And so they asked Pilate to post a guard by the, by the tomb because they wanted to make sure that nobody snuck in and, and uh, stole the body away so that it would look like He had risen from the dead. But there was no question that this was a claim that Jesus had made. He said this earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. He, uh, he was uh, uh, debating with the Pharisees. And they had demanded a, uh, a sign. He had made some pretty remarkable claims at that point, And they said, give us a sign that all these things are true. And here's how he answers them. He says, an, an evil and adulterous generation, that's how he refers to the Pharisees, seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? Jonah was the one who was thrown into the water. He was swallowed by a great fish, and he was in the fish for three days. In fact, in the second chapter of Jonah, where he uh, prays this psalm, he says he went down to Sheol. In other words, uh, he's saying poetically that he's died. He didn't really die, but the image there is that he was dead in the fish for three days. What Jesus means by this is that he will be dead, literally dead, for three days, and then he too will rise. And not only will that validate the claim that he would rise from the dead, it will validate all of the things that he said. Everything that he had said just at that meeting with the Pharisees, and every claim that he ever made was validated when Jesus rose from the dead. Another claim that Jesus made, and this is really two claims, He claimed that He was the one to reveal the Father. He also claimed that He was the one to provide the way to the Father. In Matthew 11, He says, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That's the only way that anyone can know God. The only way that anyone can have the Father revealed to them is if Jesus chooses to do that. And if you know the Father here this morning, it's only because Jesus revealed Him to you. Now, these are fighting words. With the Pharisees, they believed that they knew the Father. They believed that they knew the Father better than anybody else. So when Jesus says to them, you can't know the Father unless I reveal Him to you, they didn't like that at all. And this was just part of what led to their desiring to kill him. He said in John chapter 14, he takes it a step further here. He says, not only am I the one who can reveal the Father to you, I'm the way to the Father. Jesus said to to him, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, these are also fighting words, and these, these are words that offend a lot of people today. There are people out there who would want to say, okay, maybe Jesus is a way to the Father. Maybe Jesus is one means that we can get to the Father. Maybe Christianity is one path to God. But we want to believe that Muhammad's a path to God, and, and Buddha's a path to God, and, and any other of the world religions are also paths to God. That's not what Jesus said. He expressly said that there's no other way. The only way that we can come to the Father, the only way that anybody can get to the Father, is through Jesus. 
These are His claims. He's the one who reveals the Father. He is the way to the Father. And when He rose from the dead, He validated that claim. He proved that it's true. And although the world may want to deny it, there really is no denying it. Anybody who wants to know the Father must go through the Son. Third thing that He claims is is the authority to judge. He says in John chapter 5, He says, the Father judges no one. God, the Father, isn't going to judge anyone. But He has given all judgment to the Son. To God the Son. That's what Jesus claims. That He is the one who is going to be the judge of all of the world. And remember a few uh, weeks ago when we were looking in, in Luke's Gospel at the, at the healing of the paralytic. Remember the man who was, who was paralyzed and he's dropped down on the mat through the ceiling and laid in front of Jesus. And it says, when he, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Who, who can forgive sins except the judge? In fact, the Pharisees recognized this. The Pharisees said, who is this guy who thinks he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. They understood what Jesus was doing. They understood what Jesus was claiming when He presumed to forgive the man his sins. Oh, but when Jesus rose from the dead, He proved that He did have authority to judge and He had the authority to forgive sins. And then the other thing that He claimed, and this is the big one, He claimed deity. Jesus claimed that He was God. And this is the one that really got Him in trouble with the Pharisees. It says in John chapter 8, He says, Truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was. Before Abraham was, I am. He quotes what Jehovah God said to Moses in the wilderness. I am. And they understood exactly what he was claiming. They understood exactly what he meant by that. And so, because they saw that as blasphemy, him claiming to be God, it says they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went into the temple. It wasn't time yet for them to kill him. That time would come when he would submit to death and death on a cross. But that time was not that day. And so he hid himself and he went into the temple. In John 10, we see something similar happen. Jesus makes the statement, the Father and I are one. Jews had the same reaction here because they knew what He was saying. They knew that He was claiming to be God. So again, they pick up stones and they're going to kill Him. And Jesus basically says, why are you going to do that? Why are you going to kill Me? He says, which one of My good works is it that you're going to stone Me for? And they answered him, it's not because of what you're doing, it's because of what you're claiming. It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And now, listen, Jesus doesn't correct them here. He doesn't say, oh no, no, you didn't understand what I meant when I said the Father and, 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 uh, and I are one. What I really meant was that we're one in purpose. What he really meant is that I have a sense of unity with the Father. But I didn't mean that that I'm God. Oh no, he let them continue to think that he was God because that's exactly what he meant when he said, the Father and I are one. It's exactly what he meant when he said, before Abraham was, I am. And when he rose from the dead, he proved that he was, in fact, 
fully God. Next thing that it implies for Jesus, the next, the next meaning of the resurrection for Jesus is it was the end of His humiliation. And this was this humiliation that He voluntarily submitted Himself to. His condescension. Jesus Christ, fully God, enjoying all of the blessings and privileges of being God, voluntarily, of His own volition, agreed to condescend to become a man and to die as a man. See, Jesus recognizes on earth that He is not experiencing the privilege and blessing that He did when He was in heaven. In John chapter 17, He's praying to the Father. This is in the garden before He's uh, arrested and, and ultimately crucified. And He prays, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had before with You before the world existed. Glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. He recognizes that at that moment He doesn't have it. Now, He's not asking for God to do it right then that day. The next day, He will be killed. This is Thursday night. Friday, He's going to die. He's going to be in the tomb until the third day. On Sunday, He's going to rise. And then that's when this is going to happen. His humiliation is not complete yet. But we're getting close. And Jesus is praying. He's conversing with His Father. And He's asking Him to restore Him at that point and end that humiliation. On the cross, and this is really the, the depth of His humiliation. This is the ninth hour. That would be the ninth hour after sunrise. So about three in the afternoon, our time. Jesus cries out with a loud voice. And He says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Well, Jesus knows why, but He's expressing that the Father and the Son at this point are having no fellowship. There is a complete break in the fellowship between the Father and the Son. Because there's something going on here, right here on the cross, that goes far beyond the physical suffering that we focus on sometimes. The Father is pouring out His wrath on the Son. The wrath that every single one of us has stored up for ourselves based on our sin, our offense, our failure to honor and glorify God. That offense and the wrath that is due for that is right now being poured out on the Son. It is the depth of His humiliation. Philippians, uh, Paul writes in Philippians uh, about this. In, in verse 5, which I don't have up here, he talks about Jesus being in very nature God. He was God. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what does He do? This, this God, the, the ultimate one God, what does He do? It says He emptied Himself. He took on the form of a servant. The likeness of a man. And He humbled Himself even beyond that. He became obedient to the point of death. And not just any death. The most humiliating, shameful death that man has ever devised. He died on a cross. This is the ultimate in humiliation. And then He lay in the grave for the, until the third day. And that is the point when His humiliation ended. It was done. He had accomplished everything that He had come to this earth 
to accomplish. It began the moment that he was conceived in Mary's womb. He spent some nine months there. Then he was born and 30 plus years he lived on this earth, not enjoying any of the privilege or glory that was due him. He lived his entire life that way and then died the most horrific death. He drank in the Father's wrath for our sin. And then on the third day, it was over. His job was done. He had completed everything that he set out to do. And that brings us to the third implication of Christ's resurrection. It was the coming. It was the beginning of his glorification. As we continue on in in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Therefore, based on what Christ had done, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when He rises from the dead, when He exits the tomb on Sunday morning, this is the beginning of this glorification. Ephesians 1, Paul talks about it here as well. He talks about the the power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. And as He raised Him from the dead, it says He seated Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand. It said He seated Him in the heavenly places. He's put Jesus Christ far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the One to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as the head over all things to the church. But how, and where did it begin? It's the power that the Father worked in the Son, in Jesus Christ, when He raised Him from the dead. It's the beginning of His glorification. Peter preaches after Pentecost, some 50 days after the resurrection. This is still fresh. And Peter preaches this message. And he says, this Jesus, God raised up. And we are all witnesses of that. It's a fact. Jesus has been raised from the dead. So let all the house of Israel know for certain. And this is what he wants you to know. Based on God raising Jesus from the dead. That God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Well, we know Jesus has always been Lord. That's what the angel said when he came and he announced to the shepherds that Jesus was born. There's a Savior born who is the Lord. That's what he says. When the Magi come and they look for, for Jesus, they say, who is born the King of the Jews? Jesus has always been the Lord. He's always been the King. And yet in some way, He is even more so now. He has earned this glory. He has earned this right. He is exalted in a way that's even greater than the exaltation that He had before He came down to this earth. And this, His resurrection, is the beginning of this glorification. Now, what are the implications for the world? This is brief, but there is an implication to every man, woman, and child who has ever lived in this world, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that is that the whole world will be judged by the risen Lord. 
Paul is preaching in, uh, in Acts chapter 10. Oh no, this is Peter. Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 10. He's at Cornelius' house. And he's, uh, and, and he's teaching this. And he says, but God raised him, raised Jesus on the third day and made him to appear. That he is the one appointed by God to ju- be the judge of the living and the dead. All of us are going to stand before God, before the Son, in judgment. Whether we know Him or not, we will be judged by Him. In Acts 17, Paul now is preaching. Paul is at the Areopagus in um, Athens. And he's, and he's uh, sharing about who Jesus is. And he says, because He, God now, God the Father, has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. God the Father will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Who's the man whom He's appointed? His own Son. His own Son who is God. Jesus Christ. And then He says, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. This is how you can know for certain that Jesus will judge. This is your assurance, Paul says, because Jesus is risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. And that's how we can know that Jesus will judge everybody. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So much better to do it now. So much better to do it in this life than to be compelled to do it in judgment before you are cast into hell. Because what Jesus suffered on the cross, the, the, what Jesus paid on the cross, the penalty, taking on the wrath of God, drinking in the wrath of God, if you die and you don't know Christ, you will spend eternity paying that price. You will spend eternity bearing the immeasurable wrath of an offended God. And unlike Jesus, there will be no end to your humiliation. There will be no end to your suffering. And there will be no glorification that will be coming. But, if you know Christ, if you confess and repent of your sin, and trust in Him and what He has done on the cross to save you from that sin, then the implications that we're going to look at now for true believers, for those who belong to Christ, will apply to you. And so let's look at this. What are the implications of the resurrection to the children of God? Those who have made Jesus Christ their personal Lord and Savior. First one, it's proof. It's absolute proof that the penalty for your sin, if you know Christ, has been paid in full. Not paid in part. There is nothing left to pay if you belong to Christ. He paid the penalty in full. John 19. He's hanging on the cross after he's been given this sour wine and he drinks a a bit of it. He says, it is finished. He doesn't say, I am finished. He's not saying his death is finished. He's saying his mission is accomplished. That's what he's talking about here. The sins of the world are paid in full. All of those who belong to him have now had their sins paid for. That's what he means here. Romans 
4 verse 25 says, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. When He died, He died for our sins. When He was raised, when He came back to life, it was for our justification and proved that He had paid the price. If He hadn't risen again, how would we know? How would we know if the price was paid in full? But because He was raised, we can be confident that our sins are paid for. Paul expresses the opposite of this, the, the, uh, the, the negative in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ is still in the grave, if He's still dead, if death still has a hold on Christ, that's pretty much proof that He did not pay the price. That's pretty much proof that your penalties aren't paid for. And if that's the case, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then your sins aren't paid for and you've got a big problem. But the converse is true as well. If Christ has been raised, then your faith is not futile and you are not in your sins. That's Paul's argument here. If Christ is raised from the dead, the implication to every true believer is that sin no longer has a hold on you. That your sins have been paid for. The next implication for the Christian is that the resurrection, Christ's physical resurrection, is the basis for our spiritual resurrection. Something we've been talking about uh, a bit lately as we've gone through the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Plain and in Luke's Gospel is, is, is about how Christians have been born again. They have been made into a new creature in Christ. We are a new creation. But the basis for that is the resurrection. Romans 6 verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised, just as He was raised from the dead physically by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If Jesus had not been raised physically from the dead, there's no basis for us to walk in that newness of life. There's no basis for our spiritual resurrection. If Jesus wasn't physically resurrected, you have not been born again. If Jesus was not physically brought back to life, then you are not a new creature in Christ. But if He was, and you belong to Him, then you most assuredly are a born-again new creature made in His image. Colossians 2, verse 12 says something similar. It says, "...having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God. Who raised Jesus from the dead? We were raised. It doesn't say you will be raised. It says in which you were also raised. Well, how have we been raised? None of us have physically died yet. That will happen unless the Lord comes back before that. But that will happen. And then there will be a physical resurrection. But that can't be what He's talking about because He says it's already happened. You were raised. How have you been raised? If you belong to Him, you've been raised spiritually. You are spiritually a new creature in Christ. Based on what? The powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. That is the basis for our spiritual rebirth. And if Jesus rose from the dead, as He did, then we can be confident 
that it has happened. And finally, if He is risen, there is a certainty that our salvation is secure. If you belong to Christ, nobody can snatch you out of His hand. You cannot lose that salvation. But your salvation is not secure based on some doctrine or some theology, something that somebody wrote down in some theology book. That's not the basis for our salvation. We are securing Christ because Jesus Christ lives. And He is able to keep us until that day. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a couple of verses after the one we just looked at, says, but in Christ, but in, or, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what are, what are the first fruits? First fruits in, a, in, in agriculture in, the, in this time where they have a big field of grain, uh, the farmer would go out and he'd take a little bit of grain, he'd chop down some and he'd bring it back, and, uh, and they'd process it and they'd check it out and make sure that it was good. And if it was good, then they knew that the rest of the field was good too. It was proof that what was coming, that the rest of the harvest would be good if the first fruits was good. It's almost like when, when Jesus did His first miracle in Cana where He turned the water into wine. And they took a little bit of the wine and they brought it to the steward. And the steward drank that wine. And he said, it's good. And that proved that the rest was good. That part wasn't good and the rest was spoiled. If the first fruit is good, you know that the rest was good. And because Jesus, the first fruit, has risen from the dead, we know that all of those who belong to Him will also rise from the dead. You can count on it. Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If you belong to Him, nobody can make an accusation against you. There is no charge to be brought against you because all of those charges were paid for by Jesus Christ. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Nobody can condemn you if you belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who died. But, but much more than that, who was raised. That is the basis of our belief, of our security, because Jesus was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. You know that you have an advocate in heaven interceding for you, arguing your case in heaven. And it's an advocate, Jesus Christ, who never loses a case. You can be confident that you are secure in your salvation if you belong to Him. And then he goes on in Romans chapter 8. He says, For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the basis of it right there. Christ Jesus our Lord. We are secure from death or life or angels or rulers or present or things to come or powers, height, death. We are secure in all of those things because our Savior lives. We are secure and we can face tomorrow, as the song says, because Jesus lives. And all of these things that we've looked at this morning, we can absolutely bank on because we know that He lives. 
because He lives, I can face tomorrow. I can face tomorrow, and I can face the day after that, and if He grants me a day after that, I can face that day too. But there's even a more important day coming. There's a day coming when all men, as we saw, will stand in judgment before God. But because I have a risen Savior, because my Lord is alive today, I can know that I can face that day. And that is the hardest day for some to face. If you know Jesus, these implications apply to you. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I pray that the Lord, that the Spirit would illuminate you, would, would, would reveal to you your sin and your offense against a holy God, and would make you know that it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that you can be saved. But if you put your trust in Him, if you trust in His blood, in His redeeming sacrifice, in His atoning death to save you from that sin, that you can be absolutely secure. And you can have all of the blessings and the treasures and the inheritance that's applied to every believer. Let's pray.